lot of people think that eschatology is even a useless study, a useless pursuit. A lot of people are afraid of it. A lot of people think that there are no practical uses for it, but you'll see much of the Olivet Discourse, in fact, we've already seen, is designed in terms of the very, very practical. We're in that portion today, so we'll continue looking at some of the practical aspects of future things, and it gives us the reason why God has revealed what he's going to do in the future to us. It's not just to satisfy curiosity, but he has a design and a purpose that we know his plan. At least the broad strokes, at least the things that are most important and the things that he desires us to know. So we're going to continue on the Olivet Discourse. So in uh, kind of the setting, I've been emphasizing and using some of the photographs, particularly the ones that I took more recently, uh, to kind of emphasize where the disciples were when the Olivet Discourse was given. Mount of Olives, you've seen this one. But I'm going to show a couple of others or a few others that kind of emphasize just the, just the scale of structures that existed in the first century. Remember in the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, the disciples are admiring the buildings. And Jesus says they're all going to be torn down, at least the temple itself and the buildings surrounding it. But there do remain at the bottom some of the stones of the wall. In other words, this Temple Mount retaining wall in some places. And I'd like to kind of emphasize that in some of the photos. So they're observing. Obviously, there's no structure there that was there in the first century. But it's a impressive area there. Hopefully, we'll be able to go on to Temple Mount on our trip there. Obviously... Prominent structure today is the mosque, Dome of the Rock. Both. Well, in in the first century, in the first century, it would be Herod's temple. It would be a reconstruction of the restoration temple. Yeah, Solomon's was also destroyed by the Babylonians. Right. Same spot. At least it's believed. Yes archaeologically appears to be the same spot. In fact, it appears to be the same spot as the place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac or attempted to and then God stopped. So, Temple Mount, in fact, the platform is above those steps there. And I've been emphasizing this corner, and I show this one because I'm going to show you the opposite side. In other words, the one that is on the It's also on the south side. This is the southeast corner of that Temple Mount. All of those lower stones, those are Herodian. In other words, Herod the Great is the one that managed that project to reconstruct that whole area. took, uh, New Testament says, 46 years. And it wasn't even complete in the time of, of Christ. So think in terms of the opposite end, southwest corner. That's the southwest corner there. In fact, what I want you to notice is we're going to look at some stones right there just to impress you with the scale and why the disciples were impressed and why it's so impressive and even out of this world that Jesus would say not one stone would be left. Now, he's not talking about these stones, but he's talking about the stones of the temple and the temple complex. 
but it gives you a, a sense of what was involved in the building and uh, the construction of these structures. And the Mount of Olives is in the background, so that other, the pinnacle would be on the opposite end here, and the disciples would be on the other side of this whole complex. But I choose this because you have some stones that are very, very evident. And in fact, this area right here, does anyone know? That's a famous archaeological discovery that gives us some clues as to what it looked like in the first century, if you've seen some reconstructions of that old temple area. Does anyone know that? Have you ever heard of Robinson's Arch? Named after the archaeologist who identified it and realized what it was, and then later some supposed reconstruction drawings were made. But apparently that would be the level that people would enter Temple Mount, and there was a an arch there, in other words, a bridge that went on to the, the rest of the city. So that dates to the first century. That would have been Herodian as well. But let's look at stones that are right next to it that would also be first century. And I want you to notice, for example, these two stones, these two stones, to give you the scale, to give you a sense of the size of those stones. And here's a close-up. There's Robinson's Arch. See the projecting part of the ball there? Not much is left, but you can still tell. But here's the two stones that I want you to look. The second one below that cut area, and then the, the other one up above. Those are single stones. In fact, the top one, there's that one. You can see it's a single stone. See that? Now, I estimated 22 tons based on kind of an estimate I made on terms of the dimensions. I Based on 3 feet by 30 feet. That's 30 feet long and probably 3 feet deep. You can see that on the side there. I don't know if you noticed it. Similarly, we have a stone down here that is also about the same size, so it would be about 22 tons. It just gives you a sense of the, just the technology and the construction know-how that they had in those days to place and cut, move these stones. Very interesting. Betty? How tall is About three feet. Yeah, about three feet thick, three feet wide, according to the side there. Uh, actually, it's two. Uh, if you look at it closely, there's, there's a break right there. Yeah. So that just gives you a sense. Let me backtrack so you can kind of get a perspective on it from the distance. You can see it's the same stone. See the little hole there? See the hole? So there, there's the corner again. And, and by the way, if you just go up further to the left... That's the whaling, that's where the whaling wall is. This is the main access to the whaling wall, so it's not too far. In fact, down below, I showed you photographs of the street level, where the stones on the street were broken as a result of stones from the top of the wall that were toppled and dropped down to the bottom, breaking the street stones. So it's the same area, and those of us that go on the trip will see all of that. What kind of plants is going on the walls? That could be hyssop. I'm not sure, though. But that's how it grows, yeah. Just for the air. Just, it grows for the air. 
Well, there has to be something inside, and it, it goes into the retaining wall, so it goes probably beyond the stones and runs along the edge there. Plants are amazing. They'll find whatever opening they can find. Yeah, they feel bees in our yard. And the weeds that grow in your driveway, right? <laughs> now, here's an impressive one. In fact... We're scheduled to see this as well, a stone or a series of stones that have recently been uncovered at the very, very base under this wall, and it's the same western wall, and you have to go down into a, a tunnel. In fact, that's what it's called. This is one stone. See the uh, one stone, and actually there's another one. I think there's a break like right here, this one stone. 41 by 11 and a half by 15 feet deep. What's the material? No, that's uh, limestone. Limestone. And it's an easy calculation if you know the unit weight, which is 163 pounds per cubic foot. So multiply that times the dimensions there, and you end up with 575 tons. Actually, 576 point something. So, Mr. Engineer, how do you think they got that? I have no idea. <laughs> they had some technology that uh, we perhaps don't even have today. Also, how did they cut these stones? How they cut them? Now, they're, they've also discovered not too far, about two miles north, a quarry, limestone quarry that they believe that perhaps some of these stones came out of, but they had to move them two miles. How'd they do that? Pitch it behind the two mules that they had, or how'd they move them? So hopefully that gives you kind of a sense of what the disciples were looking at when they were on the Mount of Olives, and when Jesus says, not one stone will be left. Now, he's not talking about these specifically, but he's talking about the the temple, or the temple itself on Temple Mount. And some of the other, the upper stones were also displaced as well. We have evidence of that. So that foundation that you just showed, what, what would that have dated back? Who would that's, that? that's Herod. That would have been Herod? Yeah. yeah. These are characteristic Herod stones. Remember I mentioned uh, Herodian, are, they cut this little border. And you can see the border runs, and then it, this, this stone also has that same characteristic border. In fact, if you look at these, see, all of these, these are Herodian because they have, see the little border, you can see the borders. See the border? Yes. In fact, even the one that, uh, Armin was talking about, if you look closely, there's a, there's a border between those two as well. That marks it out as Herodian. That's characteristic. Okay. Yes. I'm not sure what you're referring to, but I think that's, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, I took those photographs when I was there about a month ago. That would have been before Christ, when they laid the big stones, and 46 years into the life of Christ, they were still building, it was essentially done, they were still doing little things. So, first century, 2,000 years ago. We've been talking about tribulation period, this period that Jesus describes beyond the first century, because they're asking questions concerning his return as well. 
There's going to be a seven-year period of time. We spent a lot of time looking at that. We looked at the passage dealing with his actual coming. That's 24, 29 through 31. And in uh, beginning in verse 32, what we have been focusing in on are the applications for the Olivet Discourse. Beginning in verse 32 to 51. In fact, I probably should extend this application portion. I've kind of broken it down into two parts, but it actually includes all of 25 as well. And we'll be looking at that uh, next time, hopefully, that we get into the outcome of this course. So let's continue where we left off. And just to introduce what we're going to look at here, as an engineer, one of the things that I was involved in, and those of you that are engineers, you do design work. And your design work, you put it down on a piece of paper, and all it is, these are just your ideas that you have transferred from your brain on the big pieces of paper, and they're simply ideas. In other words, they're just pieces of paper with ink on it. So you have engineering drawings that you conceive in your mind, but that's all they are, just paper. You can just burn them up, and your ideas go up in smoke, right? But... If you want those ideas to become a reality, in other words, those ideas to actually take form, then what you need to do is you make a decision, or an owner will make a decision concerning your ideas, and he will gather together all of the funding and the finances to pay for your idea that you have on paper, And then once he has the funding, he will buy a piece of property in order to build that structure that you have conceived. And the next thing that he'll do after he has the property, hire a contractor. And that contractor now will take those drawings and make a reality out of those ideas. In other words, put on the ground the ideas that you have conveyed on those pieces of paper. That's the process of construction uh, from the engineering idea all the way to what you find in this, for example, this building. It started with somebody's idea, we need a classroom this size, we need a gymnasium over here, we need a kitchen and that sort of thing. It's all on paper, but it becomes a reality once you go through the whole process. And this was the process that Grace Church went through in this new addition to... uh, the older part of the church there. Well, similarly, God has some ideas. And then actually, you manage the project and you bring it to completion. God has some ideas. And what he has done as he has revealed those ideas on pieces of paper. And you can do with them what you please. In other words, if you want to ignore those ideas, you can burn this up if you want. Or throw it away, ignore it, stick it in the closet, occasionally blow off the dust and maybe open it up. But their ideas, what God has revealed concerning his plan, what he will in the future construct, what he will in fact bring about. And he is working through history to bring about those ideas and they will become a reality. And what we have in the Olivet Discourse is those future plans, those future ideas that will become a reality, and he's told us the things that will precede it. 
similar to the decision making, the acquiring, the funding, the buying of property and all of that stuff, God is in the process of working out that plan and he's been pleased to tell us what it is. So when you read scripture, think in terms of this is what God has revealed concerning what he is going to do if you're dealing with things in the future. And what God promises for the future, he's given it to us that it affect us now. That's the reason he's given us this detail. And in these passages, we have insight into how to uh, view not only eschatology, but uh, everyday living. So it's very practical. And again, we've been looking at six illustrations. Parable of the fig tree, illustration of Noah's day, illustration of the labors. Last week, we looked at the parable of the traveler. That's Mark 13, 33-37. And we're going to skip from verse 42 in Matthew's account today. In fact, I'm going to look at it again, and then we will pick up the parable of the homeowner that I introduced to you last week. Two verses, another parable, another illustration. These illustrations are intended to elicit a response from us. In other words, this is the practical way to apply this doctrine of the second coming, or the doctrine of eschatology. The plan that God has laid out, what does he want us to do in between? All right? So we'll look at the parable of the homeowner, and then we'll look at the parable of the servants as well, 45 through 41. And that's where we left off last week. So the illustration of the labors, verse 42, therefore be on the alert. This is kind of the main theme of the whole thing. Alertness. And I kind of stressed that last time. The idea of being alert. In other words, that's why we're actually looking at the Olivet Discourse, because it is possible that there are things taking place in our culture today that may precede, and not too far in the future, the events that are described. Because they're going to take place sometime, and it's been 2,000 years already. So it's possible, and we ought to be prepared Without setting dates, this passage clearly indicates that, but we should have the same attitude that Jesus tried to instill in the disciples of the first century and what he is trying to instill in that generation that will see these signs. And that's what we want to take away from the passage. Alertness. And in fact, last time we said uh, there's a reason for it, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So that's kind of the theme of this whole applicational section. And in Mark's Gospel, we have four different words that we looked at dealing with that, with alertness, and then we have another one in uh, verse 43 that we'll look at. So the parable of the homeowner, verse 43 and 44, we have the exposition of the parable, what the parable is all about, so let's take another look at it. But be sure of this, and he's going to take an example of something that could occur at any time in the first century, or because there's always thieves, there's always criminals possible in our time. In fact, my house has been broken into. I was in Ukraine, what was it, four years ago, and first week I was there trying to deal with the bank and everything from Ukraine, because I had a break-in. So you've experienced same probably some of you. Be sure of this. In other words, know this, or you can be assured 
that if you had known, in other words, if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, now if I had known, I wouldn't have canceled my Ukraine trip, but I might have alerted the police, he's going to be there on such and such a day. I would have certainly alerted my neighbors to call the police to remind them, and I might have taken some other measures, I might have disposed of some of the money and that sort of done something with it. I've taken some measures, have, had I known. So that's kind of the situation. If the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, here's the thief peering in. You're gone. You're in Ukraine. Now, Jesus is using imagery that is very familiar. In fact, I think the disciples pick up on this imagery. Now, it's not that Jesus is coming like a thief in the sense of evil, but he's coming like a thief in the sense of what? <laughs> Unexpectedness. And it's going to be unnoticed, if you will. That's the illustration. That's the point here. And it, this image is used also by Paul, First Thessalonians 5.2. Somebody want to pick that one up real quickly? And it's used even in Peter, Second Peter 3.10. You want to do Paul, Jenny, who's got... Okay, Dave, do Second uh, Peter 3.10. And then obviously Jesus himself, and I think the disciples pick it up from what Jesus is saying in this context, using this parable. But Jesus also uses it in other places, like Revelation 3.3, where Jesus is giving a message to the church at Sardis in that context. It's Jesus' little letter to that church. And then in chapter 16, Jesus again in verse 15. Who wants to do the Revelation passages? Anyone got them real quick? There you go. First Thessalonians 5.2, Jenny, real quick, just read it. Just so you see the imagery. And the concept is the suddenness, the unexpectedness of the second coming. Go ahead. See that? Just like a thief in the night. Not with evil intent, but with sudden unexpectedness. Second Peter 3.10, hey. The dead Lord will come in the night, and heaven shall pass away with grace. Elements shall not another verdict, each fear, and also the works that are in Okay, second coming, and events related to it. See that? Like a thief in the night. Paul, Peter, Jesus himself, again, after he already did this in Matthew's Olivet Discourse. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. This is Jesus speaking. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come. Okay, same theme. Can you skip over to 1615 real quick? And by the way, there's other passages that emphasize, without using the word thief, but emphasize the suddenness, the unexpectedness. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see the change. Okay, the idea here, stay alert. Or, in this context, we're going to see another aspect relating to alertness. So, if the head of the house had known, he would have done certain things, he would have been on the alert. And in the first century illustration, he would have been maybe awake, waiting for the thief if he had known. Now, it's a second-class condition, contrary to fact. In, in general, when there's a thief, you're 
you don't know. And you can't stay up all night every night. Does that make sense? But if you know, then he would have been on the alert, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And, obviously, the application we'll see in the next verse. So we have verse 44 is the application. For this reason you also, and here's the fifth word relating to alertness. And in this case, be ready. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. In other words, even, and keep in mind, the context is the second coming, not the rapture. Context is second coming. So even in the midst of the signs, even in the midst of Daniel chapter 9 that gives us the exact time frame, it is still unknown. It is still uh, not certain in terms of the specific time. So, you must be ready. Make sense? Uh, here are the words that we looked at last time. And now these are in Mark's account of a different parable. And that parable is in Mark's account, but it's not in uh, the other accounts of the Olivet Discourse. And the one in Matthew 24, uh, 44, is hetoimas. Uh, the idea of readiness, preparedness, is the thrust of that idea. So an alert attitude that motivates you to prepare or take certain steps to uh, be ready for the situation. And if it's a thief, then you add to your locks or you do whatever you need to. If it's a second coming, there's certain things. We'll come back to this, and I'll give you some things that we can do to prepare for, in our case, the next event that God has on his eschatological game plan. So, for this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he is. Jim? Yes. Well, they should have taken it personally, but they also should have been aware, and there's some hints in the Olivet Discourse, that they should have been aware that he's talking about perhaps a generation beyond them. Now, they may not have fully comprehended it, and certainly at this point, they probably, everything probably went over their heads. And like much of what Jesus said, they didn't quite comprehend. It wasn't until the giving of the Spirit, and in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus promises the coming of the Spirit, and with the coming of the Spirit, they would be given not only reminders, but understanding. So when they heard this, they probably didn't fully understand it, so they applied it personally. But Jesus obviously is speaking prophetically as well, as the prophets do. We've been emphasizing that. So the you here is something of a prophetic you. It pertained to the disciples, first and foremost, but it pertained also to that generation that would see these signs, and by way of application, it applies to you and I. So your name is under that little you as well, by way of application. So the essence of what Jesus is saying, the sign, signs of the second coming, in this context, should motivate preparedness. Now, we can apply the same principle in terms of our situation. We're not going to see the second come. Well, we will see it, but that's not what will be at issue in our time frame. The next prophetic event in our time frame is the rapture of the church. So we can apply it in terms of the rapture, in terms of tertiary application.
Make sense? So that's the essence of it. The next parable is going to expand and take it one step further. The parable of the servants, verse 45 through 51. And it's got two parts to it. We have a faithful and wise servant, verses 45 through 47. And then after we look at those verses, then there'll be a second part. There's also a faithless, doesn't say foolish, but he's basically faithless, if you will. Beginning of verse 48, we'll look at that in a moment. So verse 45, now here's another parable. Following right after the other parable in verse 44. Who then, now he's talking to the disciples again, who then is the faithful and sensible slave, doulos, in Matthew's account? I'm going to make a big point. Uh, there's a different word that Luke uses. Both are, both are applicable. And both would have been uh, applicable in, uh, in first century setting. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? Now, when you think of slavery, we have kind of our U.S. history baggage, if you will, or background, and we associate a lot of negative things with slavery. In the first century, it's part of the economy, and it's part of just people's situations. There were good masters, just like today. There are good employers. There were bad employers in the first century, just like today. You might work for an evil and bad boss. Uh, hopefully, George is a better one than what we're describing here, right? <laughs> but the same concept. In the first century, when you think of a slave, think of an employee that could have good circumstances, he could have negative circumstances. In the first century, people loved their master, and they could be faithful. Now, they could also be rebellious and not faithful. So that's the situation in the first century. Who then is the faithful and sensible? In other words, the wise, the one that is got integrity, uh, whom his master put in charge of his household. And remember last time I develop the illustration, think of it like a plantation, where you have many workers, some of them sons and daughters, but you have some that are part of the household that would have been considered slaves. In other words, they're not physical descendants, but they are part of the economic functioning of that family. And they would live on the property, and they would live in a big plantation-type house. I gave you a photograph of something similar here in our country. And different people would have responsibilities. We talked a little bit about that as well. The master put in charge his household. Now, in Luke's account, it kind of emphasizes one that is given delegated authority over other slaves. And that word is oikonomas. Now, this is in Luke's account. Luke 12.42 of the same parable. Now, Jesus used that parable in a different context in Luke 12, but it's the same parable. And he uses a different word instead of doulos, which is just an everyday slave or the lowest slave on the rung. He uses a slave that is higher up. In other words, one that is more responsible, one that is more mature, one that has management skills, one that can be trusted. In fact, the economist would be a household manager. He's like would be like an office manager in our culture. And he would be responsible for the running of the whole household. 
in Luke's parable. And a household manager, he would not be an owner of anything. He'd be like an employee. He wouldn't own anything, but he would be charged with certain responsibilities because he would be trustworthy. He's trustworthy. And he also is accountable. So all of these concepts would be true of an oikonomos in the first century. And to a lesser extent, it would also be true of the lower rung slaves, or doulas. They would have certain tasks. And we saw that in the uh, uh, parable in Mark's account. So, blessed is that slave, back to Matthew, whom his master finds so doing when he comes. The blessedness of that worker, that employee, that, in this context, first century slave. A blessedness, in other words, praiseworthy, worthy of giving, given more responsibility, worthy of even reward if the master so would choose. And there was not necessarily a requirement of reward. In other words, this is just part of your job. This is part of what is expected. But a good master may, above the responsibility, may bestow some reward. And that's going to be part of the parable here. Verse 47, Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. In other words, he's going to promote him. Promote him to a higher position and give him greater responsibility. That's the reward. And with that position, that was status. Just like today, if you get a promotion in your job, uh, that's a reward. You get more pay, right? Or you should. More responsibility, more pay, more status, more respect, everything that goes with it. Similarly, in the first century, this is a promotion. If he's faithful, trustworthy, and does exactly what he's supposed to do, he's blessed, and as a result, he is rewarded. And the reward is promotion. He will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Make sense? So it's a simple illustration. Now, it gets a little bit more complicated. What is the meaning, particularly of the second part here? Now, it's pretty clear that the master is a picture of Christ at his second coming when he returns. Does that make sense? In other words, the next verse is going to expand, well, even the verses we looked at kind of is giving us that idea. This is just a parable that is illustrating something. The illustration, the master illustrates the second coming. The faithful slaves are perhaps, because of the context, faithful Israelites like the disciples, who were Israelites. But, more than likely, it probably extends to that future generation that will include believers that are both Jewish and also Gentile. So that future second coming or preceding second coming generation probably includes faithful believers as well. Sensible and faithful and sensible believers during the tribulation. And during the Millennial Kingdom, and we're going to talk about the Millennial Kingdom when we get to chapter 25, it's after the seven-year tribulation, and the book of Revelation tells us that it is precisely a thousand years. Remember, in Jewish eschatology, we have a time frame. 
So we have a thousand years, and the text also says, and there's many passages that speak of believers reigning during that thousand years. And I'll give you all the ins and outs of that. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, if in fact you have trusted in him, you will have a part in the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign. And there's a lot of specific passages that indicate something of what that will involve. Make sense? We will be there in resurrected bodies because of the rapture. That's the resurrection of believers during church age. Jim. We'll be part of the royal priesthood, right? We will have some priestly functions, yes. Not all of that, all of them. But will there be Jews part of the royal yeah, and I'll sort all that out when we get to chapter 25. In fact, the first lesson in chapter 25, I'm going to kind of give you an overview of the millennial kingdom. In fact, look at verse 1, verse 25. Somebody read 25-1 real quick there. Okay, the, the kingdom of heaven. Now he's going to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to liken it in the first parable to ten virgins. And what we'll do is we'll look at the kingdom of heaven and I'll try to sort out, drawing all of the passages, who's there, who enters, because these following parables in chapter 25 are going to deal with that, so I'll give you an overview of that. We'll do that uh, next time. Not next week, because I'm going to be out of town, but the following week we'll do that. So a reign of the saints in general, and we'll specify more specifically. It'll involve Jewish people, it'll involve mortal people, it'll involve resurrected people. We'll kind of sort all that out. But, what is alluded to here in that promotion is the concept of rewards, and the way we can apply it is there are very specific passages that promise rewards, and it seems the best time frame at which they are experienced is during that thousand-year reign. Let's look up some other passages. God is determined to give reward above and beyond. And these are by grace. In other words, we are just to be faithful. And God has chosen to those that are faithful to go above and beyond and to bestow rewards. Who's got to look? Who's got 2 Corinthians 5.10? Got it? Also... The giving of them is very specific in Matthew 16, 27. You got that one? And also Revelation 20. There's several of them, but these are, these are some of the clearest ones. Who wants to do Revelation 22? You got it? Great. 22, 12. And we need one more. Revelation 3, 21 is a specific one that Jesus, a specific promise where the giving of them are expressed specifically. Who's got it? Okay. You got it? Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And this is just one. There's one There's one very similar in Romans. And you could include 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 10 through 15 as well. But let's just read 2 Corinthians 5.10. You got that one? We must all hear with the seed of Christ. One may receive the faith. Okay. So there's positive and negative to it. And he's speaking to believers. And in that context, believers at Corinth... And he's talking about future rewards or loss of rewards or negative aspects to it at a particular time, the judgment seat or the bema. The Greek word is bema. 
The bema is the giving, it has nothing to do with salvation. It's dealing with believers whose salvation is already secure. It's reward above and beyond that that is given in terms of salvation. So here it is determined, and you might even say promised. Uh, Matthew 16, 27. You got that one, Jenny? Okay, a repayment has nothing to do with salvation. This is above and beyond salvation. And all of the passages that pertain to, uh, to crowns or rewards, where the word reward is used, that's what it's pertaining to. When it's speaking in terms of believers during the church age. And even Revelation 22, 12. You got it? And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according to his work shall be. Okay. So there's an expectation. We are what? What are we? We are doulas. Paul describes himself as a doulas of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers are looked upon as servants, if you will, if you want a milder word, or you might even say slaves, and we are expected as believers to do certain things. We'll talk a little bit about that. But that's what is expected, but by grace, God always goes beyond that and also gives reward. And the Revelation passage, that's Jesus himself speaking and promising that at his coming he gives rewards for performance. And then we have Revelation 3.21. Who's got that one? All right. Ellen? Notice the right, and he's talking about faithfulness, the overcomer. The right to sit on his throne. That's millennial. That's during the thousand years. And what else? Just as I also wanted and sat down with him. Okay. So it's talking about millennial rewards, sitting with him, and part of the reward is managing some aspect of that millennial kingdom. You'll be in the administration of the king, managing some aspect of that greater household. Does that make sense? That's the illustration of the parable here. So, but there's also the counterpart, and we'll conclude on the negative aspect. 48 to 51, there's the evil servant, or you might even call him faithless. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, I can, uh, I can kick up my heels and just relax a while, let things slide, let the duties just kind of go, Wherever they go, mismanagement here, maybe even a little corruption on the side, taking a little bit of the profit off the top. You know, I'm just going to slack off here. That's the evil slave. And he begins to, and even, and even more evil, begins to beat his fellow slaves. In other words, he's the manager, and now he is abusing those under him. And drink with drunkards. Okay, we're going to just forget about work. Let's take a few days off here. Go to the bars, enjoy ourselves, relax a little bit. Master, we can make it up later. Don't worry about it. Master's not coming for two months. See the illustration we have here? That's the parable here. Then 15.51, master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in the prior parable, like a thief, unexpected, suddenly, and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces, there's consequences. It's going to be severe. 
and assign him a place with hypocrites. And one of the most scathing denunciations by Christ in the first century are people that are hypocritical, that give the outward appearance of being Christians and are not in reality. Or Christians that may be genuine, but they're living a life that uh, does not reflect the biblical picture of Christianity. And thirdly, in there, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very severe. Now, there's a couple of ways of taking this, and theologians are divided, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you might say, well, this sounds like hell, this sounds like unbelievers, that's a possibility. That might be what's in view here. It's not crystal clear, and I can see both viewpoints, but it could also be, since you have members of the same household, you may have unfaithful believers as well, and very severe consequences here. Now, this parable doesn't bring it out, but there are other passages that indicate that even a believer in the kingdom is going to suffer some loss. First Corinthians 3 speaks of that. Is that what you had in mind there? Yeah. There's going to be some loss. Now, First Corinthians 3, what is it, 15, is not that severe as what we have in this parable. But it's expanding the parable idea there. The faithless could be unfaithful Israelites or in that future generation unfaithful believers in general and or you might even include, it could include unbelievers. They might be just hypocritical unbelievers. In other words, giving the appearance of being believers but not believers at all. But there are consequences in both of them. Reward in the kingdom for the faithful or loss of reward and even severe consequences, even more than just loss. Okay, so there's your parable. So the essence of it, the eminence of the second coming should motivate us to faithful service. Faithful service. What God promises in the future should affect what we do now. Started off with that. So it should affect what we do now. We should be prepared. And let me list real quickly, and we'll come back to this, and I'll bring this up again because our time is out. But how do you prepare? Very quickly. First of all, understand the times, understand the situation. How can you be alert to the things that, if you're not aware of what's going on around you? That's why we're doing this study, to give you an awareness of the plan of God and how it could work out in time, understanding the times. Secondly, if we are faithfully walking in the Spirit, we are moment by moment preparing and are prepared for the second coming. If you're living in faithful relationship to God. Thirdly, continually seeking and being within the plan of God, within God's will. What does God have for you? And that will involve putting your priorities in order, maintaining your priorities. This is a constant battle. I gave you four priorities. And fifthly, serving faithfully. In other words, God has a place for you. In fact, you... The basis of those rewards or loss of rewards is how faithful you are in administering the gifts that God has given you. That's the whole essence of that parable. You have spiritual gifts. You have a ministry that God has given you. And you are to be faithful like that faithful and sensible slave. And there will be reward that is accompanied with it. But the danger... In fact, the church today is woefully lacking in this. 
We pay people to do ministry and think it puts us off the hook. But in reality, God desires that each and every one of us fulfill some aspect of the broader ministry. So, are you prepared for our Lord's coming? And one thing you can do is prioritize the ministry that God has given you. Who wants to close for us? Bob. Our Father, we do for this time together ask you with grace and mercy and power, responding to the severity of this challenge, that you would give us the strength, one of us, to ensure first for us are still in good sinful and cast on the mercy of us. We thank you. Amen.